You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, and get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Haynes, who is the CEO founder of WiseTime. Tom joins us from Perth, Australia, and we'll dive a bit deeper into WiseTime, which is an autonomous privacy-focused or privacy-first timekeeping solution. And I don't want to steal too much of Tom's thunder, so I guess we'll dive right into it. Welcome, Tom. Nice to be here, Eb. Thanks for joining me. And I suppose the, you have quite an interesting story of how you came to be at WiseTime. Would you mind sort of just going into a bit of your background? I know you were an engineer for a short while, an attorney, a patent attorney for a while, and a technologist. Can you expand a bit more onto you know, your path so far? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to give you a, a helicopter view of of how I've got to where I am. So initially, I had spent time in sales, working initially for Apple and, and connected with computing through my, my secondary studies. Following on from, from there, I, I studied uh, computer science around the, the time of the, the dot-com bubble, which was an interesting period in the industry. Yeah, so following on from there, I, I moved over to London and worked on some software that was connected predominantly with the, the first generation of Nikon digital cameras and I guess more broadly to do with the sort of burgeoning industry of digital photography, you know, the ability to sort of have a take a huge number of photos and, and then have to do something with all of that that data. Following on from there, the company was that particular group was purchased by Microsoft and went on to become Microsoft Expressions Media, I think they call it, as part of the the, the office broader creative suite. So I continued on there and uh, went on to, to study law remotely while working at Microsoft. So that was my first foray into, into the legal world. What got you interested into law at that point? Do you remember? I think at the time, I probably viewed it most of all, as an opportunity to sort of give myself a or to gain a, a broader skill set other than you know mathematics and programming, which had been a or I would almost say you know verging on an obsession from from quite a young age, and just an interest to yeah, explore some of those sort of other areas of study. And law seemed like a a natural fit, just because of that intersection with with technology, particularly in the intellectual property space. I didn't have full intention of, of going on to practice law. Just one of those things where I sort of uh, fell into a, a position in the electronics division of a, of a large intellectual property law firm. And there I, I began my journey into, into the world of registration as a, a patent attorney and then subsequently practicing for the next sort of seven or eight years, I think. And you were lucky enough to be observing some interesting cases, right? <laughs> from what I remember from our last conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I certainly had a, an interesting sway of cases. I think the, the, <laughs> the first the first case I was I worked on was was the Viagra versus uh, Cialis litigation, which 
essentially involved me, you know, sitting in the back room and doing a lot of research into, you know, the evidence of the case. Mm. And yeah, <laughs> as you can imagine, it was a, it was a induction by fire, so to speak, in terms of the the topic and and also the litigation. Right. Uh, yeah. So it was definitely. Definitely interesting one. And the other interesting one I was lucky enough to work on was to spend some time in, in Utah with the, the corporate council of Alteris, which later became Symantec, yeah. working predominantly in their acquisitions team. So that was a great opportunity to you know see a lot of, I guess, the America, but more, more broadly, I guess, the American kind of corporate landscape and meeting a lot of interesting people from the sort of tech divisions of some of the large corporates. So I think, yeah, that was a, a good experience as well. But you were still drawn to the technology side of things. So how, how did you how did you get in, get back into that, I suppose? What was the inception of your ideas? Yeah, look, I think I sort of fell back into technology almost in, from a business context, almost by accident. So I, I was lucky enough to be invited to join a, a new firm that was formed shortly after I qualified as a, as a partner of that firm. And as part of the process of, I guess, optimizing and setting up and, and getting that firm to a, to a thriving state, that's where the, I guess the software aspect came in, which was building some tools around, I guess, commonly called, I guess, big data tooling, but essentially taking some very, very, very large data sets and eliminating the, the noise from those data sets so that you could then sort of have an on-demand mechanism to, to query that data set. And by using that, I could identify, I guess, where the, the principal opportunities were for our firm in terms of our legal services capacity. That was really a tool was called uh, Filing Analytics under the brand Practice Insight. And it was a tool originally intended for internal use. So I never really contemplated selling selling it to, to any third parties. And uh, I think I was on a tour of the US in connection with the Australian law firm. And I, I showed it to some colleagues and some US uh, attorney colleagues. And I, I quickly realized they were far more interested in in this piece of software than they were in Australian patent law. <laughs> uh, so that at, at that point, I, I in fact, it was uh, one of those attorneys had asked me, "This is fantastic. How much? How much does it cost?" Right. And I really, at that point, it it really had not crossed my mind that that it would be of significant uh, value to right. to sell as a commercial product. And as they say, the rest is history a little bit. So that I sort of switched a focus a little bit on that particular marketing tour to, to showing the software to pe- people. And I think within, within three years from then, I think approximately half or four, maybe within four years, we had half of the top 100 European IP learn, uh, firms as clients. Wow. Um, Yes, it was. It really did strike a chord in the within the, the the patent industry. It was obviously something that was a similar problem was being you know a struggle or or a, or a burden on the other firms mm. as well. And so I guess having it available in a sort of ready to use service, yeah, just open your web browser. I think there's a lot to be said for that sort of yeah. on demand. How, how did you grow so fast from, you know, showing it to that one, actually accidentally getting your first customer, I suppose, yeah, to yeah. having a huge customer base across the top 100 
Did you say European or worldwide patent firms? That was European, European firms. Patent firms. Okay. And, there, and there are reasons for that because the, this particular tool, just because of the way American firms are structured versus mm-hmm. European firms, this particular tool was more, was more suited to the, the European, European uh, structure. Yeah. Right. So at the time, we took a decision to, for my wife and I to move to Belgium for a year. And my wife finished her PhD in, in relative quiet and solitude. <laughs> and we essentially, I would just queue up, just went on, a, you know, every, every week I'd visit a couple of new cities mm. and go and talk maybe, you know, four or four a day over, yeah. over however many weeks and just tell them what we did and what the product was. And I was fortunate enough for, for a lot of people to say yes. I think, you know, often it's coming down to what your value proposition is and what the return on investment they're going to get. After I, you know, I had one about the, the biggest law firm in the, one of the, the biggest law firm client I had, one of their staff who I dealt with a lot had left, uh, left that firm. And uh, I remember one day I saw her later and she said to me, oh, I think you could have charged us 10 times more than you did and we wouldn't <laughs> have blinked. So perhaps, perhaps a, a low price point, which I thought was exorbitantly high, uh, you know, so that, you know, maybe, you know, but I think fundamentally I've always used the rule that, you know, if you want to sell a particularly software, you really need to be able to demonstrate a, a six, a six X return, okay. you know, an expected six X return. Right. Because I think if you're, if you're proposing an expected, you know, 1.5 type return. Yeah. By the time you factor in the implementation risks, you know, the cultural risks, mm-hmm. all the, re- you know, the reasons sometimes. The does, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think it has to be really almost, I would use the phrase no brainer, but a de- yeah. you know, a decision where there's really very little doubt that it is a good decision. Yeah. And I think if you, if you can get there, I think that's where a, a product has a good chance of, of, you know, rapid adoption. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, and, you know, especially with technology generally, the ease of implementation is becoming something that's commonplace for a lot of things, even for complex solutions, right? If you're doing sort of big data analytics, it still needs mm-hmm. to be easy enough to implement and use, but you're asking people to essentially take a risk, even if it's for a short term. So mm-hmm. making that decision as easy as possible by saying, look, based on whatever metrics you're measuring, we think you'll get six, eight, 10x return, then it, yeah, mm-hmm. it does make it a no-brainer. It doesn't mean that it's easy, <laughs> I'm sure. No, right? no, but no. It, it removes one hurdle, one potential hurdle, um, so you can yeah. talk about everything else. Yeah, and I think, yeah, that, that particular product had another sort of selling point beyond the ROI, which was it provided the purchaser with access to a set of information that they're, competitors may or may not have and in the case where their competitor did not have it the value proposition was even larger so there was that sort of sense of essentially gave them competitive advantage in some cases yeah yeah Yeah. which which you know a lot of people business context for sure yeah there's there's no one that i think people seem to enjoy beating more than their closest (laughs) right yeah (laughs) yeah for sure and then so what, what happened from that point on so you had this thriving software business you know, present in a lot of big firms, big IP firms. Yeah. What's the next step? Essentially, that that tool was really built around a very large sort of bringing a structured order to the patent data sets, which are massive. I mean, we, we you know, on some days our our main databases would be doing you know sixty million writes wow. in a day. 
And so the scale is, is absolutely eye-wateringly large. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of public data sets, it's one of, you know, uh, other than the, the sets collected by, you know, people who are receiving a lot of input or crawling the, the, the broader web content. Right. In terms of public data sources, it's I think it's one of the biggest. Uh, so really, I'd say 90% of that product, the work was around this the data component, which no one sees, and the 10% was the the web interface and and the part that sort of queries that data. But the the huge burden is is the maintenance and updating and just keeping all of those those massive systems right. running because it's dealing with unstructured information. Right. Around that time, it's about four years ago. The first publicly listed patent law firm, IPH Limited, uh, floated on onto the Australian Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. I hadn't been following it closely, but I received a telephone call, yeah, one day from the then CEO of, of IPH, who was also the head of the Patent Attorney Institute of Australia, mm-hmm. and he asked me if uh, if if he could buy my business. Uh, so <laughs> I guess that, that <laughs> and this was that, the Practice Insight brand. Yeah, that was practice insight. And at the time we also had, I'd been working on wise time for the the previous three years prior to that, but I hadn't launched it yet. So that was all sort of wrapped up into that. And, and from my point of view, uh, you know, the the biggest up until that point, it had been self, we'd had a lot of organic growth, Mm. but it effectively been myself and two other investors sort of in equal share in terms of the capital requirements for the business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having a $700 million company or wherever they were at that time right. really was exciting opportunity to, to do a lot of things that I would have done, but for, you know, the need to maintain uh, some semblance of, of ongoing financial surety, uh, you know, that a house over the head, et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, that was an, you know, obviously a big, big change for the company, mm-hmm. a lot of resources to do things in, in much better ways and and focus on uh, wise time, which has sort of always been sort of seen as the, even though at the time it had zero revenue, I think it was the most promising product in the sense of its value proposition, its, mm-hmm. you know, potential in the legal market. So, yeah, that, that so since then we've sort of been working on wise time and, mm-hmm. As part of that strategy, we maybe a year ago or a bit less, we sold all of the patent software to another, to the biggest patent software company group okay. in, in the world. They've taken over that project, which essentially means I've got the same team now to, to focus on one product instead of three. Yeah. Instead of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. Awesome. Um, so I think that's a good segue into what is wise time. Right. So, and yeah, you said it yeah, has yeah. the most promise, even though it has zero revenue at that time. Yeah. What, what does it do? Uh, so essentially, it, again, it's, it's a product that's been born out of my own frustration as a patent attorney. Mm-hmm. And it's an autonomous timekeeping solution. And what we mean by autonomous is that it passively, in the sense that it requires no input from, from the user to do it, generates a summary of where the user's attention or the attorney's attention has been through the day. Now, the usual way we, we generate this, this information about the attention of the user historically has been either, you know, a notepad, you know, from 8 till 8.30, I'm working on this matter, or, and, you know, either then manu- manually entering that notepad into a, some sort of 
they all look very similar, sort of like an Excel-based form type, you know, where you need the matter number, the time and the description, enter. Or it's given to a secretary or some systems have used this concept of a start and stop timer where you, you know, switch into matter X and press start. For anyone that's ever used those, we'll, we'll be all too aware that whilst it's, you know, the, the probability of you pressing stop in time before you switch attention to something else is pretty, pretty low. So in practice, the start-stop timer doesn't work very well. And the manual, you know, using the, you know, a notepad and later typing in, I mean, the two main problems are, one, you spend a, hell, you know, you spend a lot of time documenting about what you've done. And what wise time aims to do is to remove that time in your day that you spend writing notes about what you've done and instead just get on with what you need to do. There's all sorts of empirical evidence around the cost of switching a context. So the cost of going from one task to the other and the amount of time it takes to, and really timekeeping has nothing at all to do with the practice of being an attorney or the problems you're trying to solve. It's really just a, a pretty low level administrative type burden task. And I'm sure just about every attorney has experienced where you get to the end of the day or the week and, and you've been at the office for 10 hours and you've managed to make notes about six hours of what you did. <laughs> right. And, you know, that information is kind of lost, which then, you know, leaves, yeah, leaves a bit of a gap and, and you know, you don't really have a good idea of, of what you were doing. So wise time, essentially, when we talk about attention, mm. we, we consider the user's frontmost window to be the point of their attention. So okay. the frontmost window, the way I usually explain it is that if you were to move the scroll wheel on your mouse, mm-hmm. the frontmost window is the one that's going to react to that scroll wheel. Right. So it's the it's the selected window. So in practice, you you know if you open an email, it, the selected window is the one that the window you're working on. Right. And so whatever window is to the front, as long as you're sort of have a sort of modicum of activity and you can set how long you want until it considers you to have steps, you know, to no longer be on that window. So if you, yeah, if you don't move the mouse and don't touch the keyboard after, uh, you know, two minutes, it'll retrospectively realize, Oh, okay. That was you going away two minutes ago. Mm. And, and then when you return to the machine, once it detects your back. So if you just bump the mouse, cause you've got papers on your desk, it won't consider you back then. Right. But if, but if you move the mouse and start to use the computer, it'll then, yeah. there's a, a prompt, a bit like when you get an email saying, do you want to log this time? So okay. if you go away to a meeting, you, know, you and I are talking today, you, mm. you go back to your computer, it'll say, you know, what have you been doing? You know, do you want to leave a right. note about your activity for the last hour? Oh, and that way, you know, the same goes if you were, say, if a telephone call arrives or maybe if you're a, if you're a managing junior attorney, someone's coming to your office, you know, wanting to chat, interrupting you. Right. When you turn back to your machine, yeah, you, you don't lose time through the day for when you're not at the computer. Mm. And we also have an Outlook plugin for, for Android and iOS so that if you're doing emails on the, on the go, you mm. can also capture that attention information into okay. your central timeline. So basically, let, let, me, let me make sure I understand. So the idea is you get this application, I'm going to call it, for, mm-hmm. you know, for ease of use. You get this application, it's kind of running in the background and 
automatically keeping an eye on my most active window, essentially logging whatever I'm spending time in. So at the moment, I have a window open, for example, with this recording. I have mm-hmm. a Chrome window open. I have Word open. And mm-hmm. it's saying, actually, you've spent 36 minutes or whatever in this you know, recording window. So we'll log that. When I switch my attention to Chrome and I'm scrolling through the Wise Time website, for example, it will mm-hmm. say, okay, you spent whatever amount of time on that. Yeah. And when I go back, let's say to my main computer, it'll say, hey, you've been gone for 37 minutes. And I will get mm-hmm. a prompt saying, you know, do you want to log what you've been doing for 37 minutes? So I can make sure I don't lose that time. And then most of, so 90% of the work is being automatically tracked and the mm-hmm. work that's manual, like meetings and calls and so on, mm-hmm. I can be prompted to log. So I, I make sure I'm not losing any of that potential billable time. Yeah. Or just that, I mean, yeah, potentially billable time or just the information right. about, you know, there's a reason why management, even if it's not lawyers, mm-hmm. you know, do want the information about where time is spent. And that's because it's, you know, your, your people is, you know, it's always the most valuable asset of any mm. company, both not, you know, in every respect of that, of, yeah. of that right. context. And, you know, the only gift that, that your team can give you is their attention. And so, you know, that, that's partly why we, it's not, you know, we, even firms often ask for non-billable information, you know, mm. are you having to spend a lot of time doing training? Are you having to do accounts? Oh, right. if you're doing a lot of time in accounts, you're a highly valuable resource for us can we get a junior in to take the accounts off you? So this is always right. valuable information. So you're using and, your almost a sort of team management and sort of process management to make sure that, you know, as, as a lawyer, for example, I'm focusing on the work that A, brings in revenue and that's my expertise and I'm able to offload if I see that actually, you know, uh, let's say I'm, I don't know, a, an administrator in the firm and I see that my lawyers are spending 40% of their time in accounting or something else, which isn't their forte, then yeah. that should be delegated, right? So you actually have that. Yeah, high you level take, that, that. take the burden off if, if you want to. I mean, yeah. um, I'll come back to that around privacy settings. Mm-hmm. But And yeah, the other time that it is useful is in the context of some firms are using fixed fee billing. Yeah. Just in terms of if you're able to, without much burden to, to log the amount of time you actually spent on those fixed fee items, even if it's not charged to the client, it gives you a really good indication of, you know, fixed fees in some senses are a zero sum game. (laughs) Someone's always going to win or lose it compared to a hourly, but it gives you a pretty good insight into how long those fixed fee items are actually taking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, different people in the firm, maybe spending different amounts of time on the same thing. I mean, they're, they're business considerations. But the starting point for making any business decision is having good data. I mean, right. I think that's fairly well recognized now. And we're, what we're trying to provide is the, the data of people's attention. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's probably a good segue to talk about privacy because this is a really important component of the, the, the platform. Yeah. And um, I think so just before we get onto that, just to frame the conversation, when, when we spoke about, you know, we had a quick chat last week. One of the things I quite liked is you mentioned when you're talking about timekeeping, you mentioned there are three key pillars, at least from your perspective of this, right? And the first one was privacy, the other integration and last one elegance. So mm-hmm. I'm just sort of, yeah, just to set the stage, uh, let, let's talk through them actually. We'll start with privacy because that seems to be a key thing. Yeah. 
So privacy, I think, is is particularly when you start to talk about you know the data being autonomously gathered. I think privacy becomes absolutely critical to the system being useful to the attorney. So there's no, we've almost actively engineered the product to, there are products out there that are really aimed at sort of control management style stuff where, right. you know, there's an, one other autonomous timekeeping sort of app that I know of, but they're targeted at a very different market. And, and you know, their advertising is really around, you know, you can see what your staff are doing right. in, in real time, you know, all this type of stuff, and which, which I find a little abhorrent. It's a bit of know. a big brother type approach, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so with Wise Time, we've really, we've reversed that onus. Mm. So even if you were paying for a team of 10 users and you came to us and said, we want access to team number three's time logs, the answer from us is no. It's stated on our website. It's a not negotiable. If that user number three, they are perfectly able and welcome to go into their private timeline and mm. select blocks of time and post it over to that team, a bit like sending right. an email. Yeah. But the other way around, it's, it's, so it's the data, the starting point is always that the data belongs to the individual mm-hmm. unless they choose to what sure. we call post or release or so they can release from nine till 10, right. You know, not release 10 to 11, delete 11 to 12. Right. And you can also set, you can set data retention policies that says like, if I haven't, once you post, it's a bit like sending email. Mm. And then you can say, look, after two weeks, I want all of my data, tail data deleted because right. I have no interest in what I was doing four weeks ago. I've already posted what I needed to, to our And that and sort of goes platform. into the right to be forgotten and, and sort of that, that kind of concept. Essentially. Actually, right to be forgotten is, 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 it's in the same sort of sphere, but it's slightly different. So you remember, we, you know, talking about posting the time mm-hmm. from your private to the team at team store, a bit like sending yep. an email. The right to be forgotten feature, essentially uh, under European law, a person can go and say, I want you to destroy any information that identifies me within, yep. your, within your records. So what we do, this is time that they have sent to time B. Okay. So it has been released. So what we do is we effectively anonymize right. the data that was posted. To the individual. Right. So instead of it being, you know, Tom or Ab's data, all of a sudden it might become, you know, anonymous user four, anonymous user five. Right, right. You know, so we, okay. we retain the information about where like the, the, the metadata or the big picture data, but we remove any identifying metadata. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that happens sort of at the click of the user's button and it's, there's nothing the team owner can can do about it, so to speak. And we do that again under the privacy first principles. And it's mm-hmm. also in compliance with the, the GDPR privacy legislation you might have heard of. It's quite a big, big deal. Oh, yes, in, very in Europe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we really aim to solve that, you know, that legal burden of the, the team owners. Mm. Uh, having said that, once the information's been posted out to an accounting system or a time and a, that's that's nothing to do with wise time. We can't, right. you know, we don't touch that. Right. So the, I guess, and we've also built in a lot of like user focused privacy safeguards. So I, I encourage my staff to use them, you know, in the preferences, you can say things like if, if I'm using, you know, if we use Google Chrome as our main web browser for work, you can, you can say, if you see Firefox open, just automatically don't record, don't, don't gather any attention information into the system because, right. 
save me deleting it later from my timeline because I use Firefox for all my personal web browsing. Okay. Or you can say keywords like if you see the word, you know, I'm trying to trying to think of the name of a of a famous American a bank. But you know, if you see Chase Bank, if you right. see Facebook, if you see Instagram, any of these keywords, mm. just wipe it because it's not going to be work related. I don't even want to bother to have to go and delete it from my timeline. So I think that's really important that people don't feel like they're, you know, if they make a wrong move or whatever, the data is going to end up somewhere. They need to have that sense of mm. total control control because it, okay. it, it's something quite personal. And that that's why we haven't gone down the path of trying to do a similar thing on mobile phones. Right. How's the, the privacy first aspect? How's that been received by the end users, by, by your customers? To be honest, it's the difference between them wanting to use it and not wanting to use it. And what I've seen when I first, so I, I did some first pilots around three years ago and we really didn't have such well-developed privacy principles. You could delete time, but only, but it still was available there right. if you forgot or whatever. So what I found is that, you know, the senior partners, you know, the people responsible for the running of the business, they all said, yes, where do I sign? Barely asked yeah. me for the price. They could see the value instantly. Right. And I think one or two minutes later, they'd think, oh, what will the staff think? Will the staff think we're trying to, you know, have some sort of surveillance type aspect here? Right. You know, I'm very concerned. I don't want people to think that. They could see it's a great tool for mm. helping them achieve what they need to achieve to make the business viable. But, you know, saving whatever, an hour a day of, of you know, taking away an hour a day of time that they're currently spending or you know, half, or maybe an hour, hour and a half a week you know, mm. is what you save from not typing all that stuff in or giving it to your secretary. So we went away, we didn't launch, and we re-engineered it to have a very clear separation between the, the private, you know, the user and the team at right. every stage. So we looked at every part of the system and said, what's the privacy first principle? Mm. And the GDPR stuff, I guess, came in halfway through that process. Right. It was a very expensive decision to make. It required a huge amount of re. You have to rethink your entire platform. Right. You kind of have to re-engineer uh, the whole thing, right? Yeah. You have to separate everything. Yeah. And that also gave us the capacity to be able to offer off-site team nodes. If if a, I mean it, it's it's not our preferred option because we obviously we have to support the updates, you know, mm -hmm. to their server platforms, etc. But it's been decoupled in such a way that the data nodes, meaning the information about the teams and individuals can live in different locations. So I think, you know, that's something that the bigger enterprise seem to, to value, I guess, is that control hmm. element over, over the, the data. Okay. So that's yeah. the privacy aspect of it. What about sort of the integration points? Yeah. So I think the integration again, I mean, that, that, that's, I see as a really critical thing. I mean, integration, what I, what I mean by that is that I can, I can get to the end of my day. I can see my timeline of what I've done through the day and I need to be able to fairly quickly, you know, we aim to have it down to within two minutes, mm -hmm. click on, click on, you know, block time A, B, give it a tag of, of like which case or what, it might be, know, right. what matter it might be. And then, you know, group it together at a human context, like talking about blah, 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 that you might not infer from, from just document titles and then press post. Right. And then when you press post, that information has to end up where you need it to end up as in inside your practice management software, for example. 
so that it's then your practice management software says, oh, this is important company, Acme. We give them a 10% discount. The time's coming in from Bob. That's worth 300 an hour. So all of that business logic, we don't want people to have to set up any new systems. All we do is we replace the the manual form input of Mm. person X on matter Y for duration C description D. So, so that integration supplementing what their current process might be, but taking out the sort of laborious, boring parts and probably in some ways the more error prone parts and then sort mm. of feeding it into the systems they already have set up and are used to. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we don't want, I mean, those sorts of practice management systems, accounting systems, they're very complex beasts. And mm. I, you know, we, we have a talented team, but you know, we're really focused on doing one thing and doing it really well, yeah. as opposed to trying to sort of serve too many needs. So yeah. we don't allow people to create invoices. We, we're really just trying to, so at a pilot firm, we, we, a large firm we've been working with, they have a manual app called Timesheet app that mm-hmm. they double click on and type in point one matter right. number. And with our trial attorneys, the initial pilot group, we wanted to get to a stage where we could take away the manual input mm-hmm. and they could still be not feeling aggrieved and be able to complete all their time and attendance requirements. Yeah. So within the worst time you can actually add, like if, if you didn't log time and you got back to your computer or you delete a block of time from 11 to 12, you can just add manual time okay. into that block of whatever you right. were doing. And before you post it into the system, you know, you can say, I want this to be no charge or there are mm. different options you can configure so that you still post the time through or you might have a travel rate you use when you're traveling to a client's office. It's a much lower billing rate. So, you know, you select low rate post. So the information still ends up in your system mm. because otherwise I think it's just a, it's a nice curiosity to have. You get right. to the end of the day, oh, oh, well, I've only put in three. What was I doing? You know, let's look at my, the, you know, where the elephant that remembers what you were doing. Yep. That's, that's useful and good but it still doesn't remove the need for you to be doing that one to two hours of manual labor that that you could be doing something else. And we also find that attorneys, it's just, if you're doing four or five minute emails in the morning, a lot of attorneys will do like 10 to 15 quick emails. It's hard to justify opening up the matter, typing (laughs) it in 0.1, receiving an email. If you do that 10 times, you've just lost 15 minutes. The alternative is you just go straight ahead with it. And at the end of the year, we've got it. And the other, I guess, so the other piece of integration that's important is whenever new matters are created, they're uploaded as, as tags to the Wise Time team, your Wise Time okay. team, yep, the, comp, the firm's team. Yep. And that's the, you know, the tag and you can have like alternative aliases, you know, as in like the tag might be, you know, case one, two, you know, three, four. And in your old system, you used to call case one, one, three, four, like some other schema, like in the old uh, 80s system, it's called P11684. Mm. You know, so you can add, and if you see either of those bits of text, we match it to that tag, one, one, three, four. So so our algorithms scan the text and detect, if, if it can, it'll automatically tag that case, the attention information with the case tag. Mm-hmm. And that, that just takes advantage of a common practice in law, which is to include the reference number in your right. documents. 
their yeah. emails, etc. So yeah, that, that's a so ideally maybe half of your day has already been tagged for you. It's just a matter of adding a comment for the invoice if you want to. Right. And then pressing post, post, post. You can do that at the end of your week, having done no no time stuff all yeah. week. So you know, we can, you can go back to Monday and it's pretty easy. And then I get the, the elegance aspects, just conscious of time. Well, elegance for me is software that, that, you know, you really enjoy using and right. that, you know, we put a huge amount of focus on, on building tools. We use it ourselves, you know, all of the attorneys within our broader group use the tool. Mm-hmm. So a lot of internal stakeholders use it and, and we, yeah, we put a lot of emphasis into making it sort of everything from small things like the keyboard shortcuts yeah. to, you know, the way it looks, the way, how quickly it behaves, whether there's any blocks. So, I mean, that I think you just, from using different systems, that becomes immediately evident whether it's something right. that's... So you're just making well, it appealing to people so they actually want to use it. And when they are using it, it's relatively easy for them to get their heads around it, right? Yeah, and pleasant. And I mean, to give you an example, I mean, one of the key, one of the key early patents on the system was is around rounding. So, if you actually look at the raw data of a day, you'd be you'll see like like within an hour there might be like uh, forty entries, and 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 ten of those entries will be like three seconds in Windows Explorer. You know, right, right. So what the system does is it takes all of that, what we call insignificant information, Mm -hmm. and it injects that time proportionally into where your attention actually was. So if you you were writing an email for three minutes, then you switch to something else for five minutes, then back to the email, it'll just show the email as three minutes and five seconds. So our goal is, is to have no more than about, I think the maximum is eight items per hour Mm. and the minimum time you'll ever see is one minute. And that way you don't get inundated with noise. Right. It's more like if you asked your colleague, what were you doing last hour? You don't want to hear two <laughs> seconds, Windows Explorer. Yeah, exactly. so you really yeah. just give me the headline summary. And so, yeah. and, and that's also useful from the, the billing and, mm. and, you know, so we reduce the data noise before it, it ends up in your, is mm. downstream system. Okay. And I'm conscious of time as well, but I have to, yeah. I suppose two more things to ask. So I think there's been, you know, timekeeping is not a new thing and trying to automate timekeeping is also not a new thing. It's been around and people have been trying to do that, certainly in legal and other uh, professional services market for a long, long time. And I think competition is good and everyone seems to be approaching it from a different angle. And I mean, I like your angle of being privacy first. What do you think, what, what's your, I suppose, vision? Where do you see this going? Do you, do you envision some sort of a, and especially as, as you have a lot of these integration points, you open and you have an open API and so on, do you envision there to be eventually this ecosystem of apps, for lack of a better word, uh, sort of utilizing your API, allowing people to sort of, you know, view their their usage habits and sort of keeping time across different systems or do you have a sort of different vision in mind? It's a bit of a leading question, but (laughs) yeah, as I see it, one of the ways, so wise times designed so that the individual's time is always private to them and they can belong to one or more teams. So the way I see it is that yes, legal services might be predominantly posting to, to, one team, their own firm, yeah. but perhaps you know if they were engaged in a in a different capacity, working as an outside counsel for Thomson Reuters or other organisations, yeah, you know, it becomes a, a mechanism to have a, a fair account of people's 
time being mm. sort of, so I would say, oh, that hour I want to post to Thomson Reuters, which then triggers off their systems to send you whatever, according to whatever agreed, you know, contract you have with them right. to then send that. So it removes a lot of the need for this sort of like intermediary auditing. And yeah. you just have confidence that the person who says they've done the work has done the work. You'd be, it'd take you that long to fabricate this is this kind of detailed data. Yeah. So it really is, you know, it's very transparent, but as a way to provide the information we always have to provide, which is mm. what attention have you given me as a, as a person who's paid to think? Mm. And, you know, given that's the basis, you know, I, I see that I'd like to see, I mean, we've, yes, we're using open API. We've made all of our integrations so far are all open source in, in GitHub mm-hmm. and we're, you know, Zapier integrations, so I'm hoping that, you know, I would love to see, you know, some people or platforms or companies start to say, hey, if we could get this data into ours, so, so building that integration to effectively just receive that attention information into their system yeah, and whatever form that might take. So we're trying to make that as easy and open as possible. But yeah, my hope for the future would be that, you know, it becomes more towards a reliable way of getting attention data from people and killing the killing the dreaded manual timesheets yeah. <laughs> to yeah to, to the right. history. Yeah. Yeah. To right. So that's okay. Right. And other than other than just having a look at the WiseTime website, which I believe is wisetime.io, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. wisetime.io. I think if you Google wise wise time it'll be the first okay. uh, first hit I would hope. Uh, and I think on the top there's about a 60 second, you know, video that, that sums it. I think that, that you save yourself the, a lot of reading that, that pretty much shows you exactly what the system does. And, okay. and it's, you know, you can see the user interface, you can download it. It's not, it's not a vaporware product. It's, you know, it's in use at some very large firms and, and that, you know, we have a queue of, of firms wanting to get set up and live. So it's, mm. I think it's, it's in use in production. It's, you know, it's proven, and you know, I, I think that uh, I'd welcome any and everyone to try it. You know, try it out. It's it's free for teams of four or less people. Um, so if you just want, it, if you just want it for that tool of like, oh, what did I do today? Mm. There's nothing. You know, you can you can get that facility without without you know for free at, at, the, at the moment. Awesome, that's great. And other than that, do you have any other last sort of ask of the audience if they want to get in touch with you? Is sort of LinkedIn the best place to find you, or just go through the website and contacts through there? Yeah, either LinkedIn or if you reach out to our customer care people, and yeah. uh, they'll, they'll forward it forward it through to me. But yeah, if anyone has any queries, suggestions, yeah, points of debate. Always open to it. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tom. That was a really good chat about timekeeping. And yeah, I'm excited to see what it brings. And I think certainly in this time of increased focus on privacy, this is an important piece of software that people should investigate. Anyone who's sort of doing any sort of professional service work. Thanks for your time, Meb. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.